0: listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. Uh, well, if uh, you hang out with me for any amount of time, you're going to find out pretty quickly that I am what they call a cinephile, which is, sounds like I love sin, but that's not what it means. I love cinema, which is different, though not all the time. Um, uh, I love uh, movies, film. Uh, I just, I, I've always, since I was a kid, I've enjoyed it. And and uh, and so me and Kelly are always, you know, watching the the next thing. And and um, you know, but I'm the type of guy when I watch something with her, you know, it, it's a thriller, and she's got a blanket over over her face, and I'm like, dude, did you see the lighting on that guy's face when it melted off? It was amazing. Did they film that in 33 millimeter? Like, I'm I'm into that kind of stuff. Like the, I just like. Movies, and I, I think more than that, I, I like, uh, I just like good storytelling, right? I, I like a story told well, and there are, uh, that's hard to do. There are elements that got to be in place that move a story along, that make it compelling, those types of things, devices that are employed, uh, and, I, and I love keeping an eye out for that. You know, the, the tropes that, that uh, uh, storytellers use that, that help sort of move the, the plot along. You know, we see them all the time, uh, different sort of. Uh, tropes and devices employed in uh, a good story. Like the uh, underdog wins it all trope, right? You, you've seen that. It's like Mighty Ducks, 1, 2, 3, 4, 9, 10. It's, it's those movies. Um, th- that's a very common sort of trope. Uh, also, uh, the, the sort of naive hero mentor trope, right? So very popular in uh, uh, sort of uh, sci-fi fantasy movies. you got, you got your protagonist and uh, he's struggling through this season of difficulty, and he's in a hostile environment. He's got to make his way this way, and, and all of a sudden, uh, a sage comes along, someone who's wise who's gone before this guy or girl, and, and he sort of leads him through the, the, the path to the place he needs to go, right? We see this all the time. This is uh, uh, Luke and Yoda. It's Neo and Morpheus. It's, it's Harry and Dumbledore. It's Gamora and Thanos to a lesser and more benevolent. Uh, extent. But it, this is, we're familiar with this thing, right? It is, you, you find yourself in a hostile environment, environment and, and you need a guide while you're in there who's gone before you. You need to sit with a sage. There's something so instinctual in all of us. We, we know, we have an impulse toward this. When, when we're going through difficulty, we need a guide to lead us as we go through. Now, I say this because if you're like me at all, you've probably experienced these past two, three, four years as, as a heightened level of difficulty, there, are, there is just more going on, more hostility, more diff- especially in, in interpersonal uh, relationships and, and conversation. It is just, it is a minefield out there. I feel like every other conversation I'm in is just a, a sparring match. Do you guys feel like that? Like the hot topics are everywhere. There's controversy. There's contention. It's, it's, a ho- it's an interesting time. Uh, to be in this country, navigating uh, just interpersonal conflict and, and communication—it's difficult. And, and so, we—the the sad part about it is, the, the folks who should be batting a thousand in in this lane, who should really be able to navigate these things the best, us Christians. Unfortunately, we're just—we're we, not great at. It. I don't know if you know they're not, but like historically, Christians have had a pretty bad rap lately of like navigating controversy. Well, it's it's a little bit messy. I was, remember uh, I was talking to my uh, friend Ben, who pastors a church up in D.C., and I was asking him, you know, his thoughts on it. And he said, you know, it isn't even so much what we're talking about, but it's how we're talking about it. That that we've forgotten the art of of arguing well. We've forgotten that art. Like, uh, How do we engage controversy? How do we navigate when the environment is hostile? How do we navigate conversation in that setting? I personally think in 2021, we could use a refresher on what that looks like. And so to do that, we're gonna do what all good stories do. We're gonna sit at the feet of a sage, of a veteran in controversy. And we're gonna listen to what he has to say. And the person I'm talking about is the Apostle Paul. This guy is, is a pro in this lane. If you've read anything from Acts 9 on, you know that Paul's entire ministry was just nothing but contention, drama, controversy, you know, def- defending the gospel, contending for the faith, being in hostile situations. This is what he does. It's his bread and butter. So we want to sit with him and see what he has to say. And in this text, in Second Timothy, he's writing a letter to his disciple Timothy, who is in the midst of also another very hostile cultural moment in Ephesus. He's a pastor there, and what Paul's doing is he's helping him engage with opposition well. That's what he's doing in this moment. So how do we engage when the topics really matter? That's the driving question that we're getting into this morning. Paul's gonna help us answer that question, and he's gonna tell us that, and here's sort of, a, of our controlling statement for the morning. So if you wanna write this down, this would be helpful for you. He's gonna tell us that in controversy, We are to be a people of character and competency in order to correct the captured. That was five C's. That was the most preachy thing I've ever done up here. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Listen to this. In controversy, we are to be a people of character and competency in order to correct the captured. That's where we're going this morning. Okay, that's where we're headed. But before we get to that, Paul wants to start by telling us some of what not to do. And if I could summarize him and what he's saying, he basically says, hey, listen, when it comes to controversy, avoid the dumb stuff. That's Paul's opening right here. Avoid the dumb stuff. First, he says, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels." So the first thing Paul says is before you do anything, anything else, before, before you make any proactive progress, you need to determine, is this a dumb debate? Isn't that great? <laughs> is what I'm talking about important or not? And if it's not, you run, Christian. He says, avoid these things. That phrase that he uses, foolish and ignorant, could also be translated, I love this, stupid and silly. Isn't that great? I love when the Bible just shoots you straight. It's just It's stupid and silly things. And and here's the issues that that he's talking about uh, with Timothy. In 1 Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he tells us the kinds of things that he's referring to when he's talking about foolish and ignorant controversies. He says it's stuff like devotion to myths and endless genealogy. So there was this tradition of, of going back, the Jews would go back to sort of the Old Testament family tree and try to make these long, complicated sort of theological arguments as they trace lineages of this person or that person. They would squabble about words and all, the, all this stuff. And He says, it's, it's silly. Don't, don't do that. They're myths and endless genealogies which promote, he says, speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. He's saying, hey, when you get involved in those things, it's actually distracting you from your mission. Don't do it because it's taking you off mission. You're focused on speculations instead of the stewardship that God has given you by faith. It's distracting you from mission. But it's not just that. It's bad for others, too. It's not just bad for you. It's bad for others, too. In in 2 Timothy 2, 14, just a few verses earlier, he says this, don't quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. He says, Timothy, you might actually be Ruining someone else's faith as they watch you squabble about petty arguments. Did you know that? That as, it, as we pick up these, these foolish and ignorant speculations and, and, we, and we go to war about them, that when others watch us, the warning of Scripture is, if they see you doing that, it could actually damage and ruin their faith. So it's distracting, it's ruinous, and can we just agree, those are two wonderful words to summarize about 90% of the stuff we go to war over. Is that f- fair? I just, I feel like when I'm looking around, I'm like, why are we arguing about this stupid stuff? There's so much of that happening. And, and man, our culture is so not helping us w- with it. Uh, this might be hard to believe, um, but not everything On Facebook is important. I know. I know. It's true. I googled it. Not everything is important. When we engage and are enraged by every stupid thing that comes across our feed, we are falling into a trap. And I use that word on purpose, a trap, because that's exactly what it is. I don't know if you've been keeping up with sort of like the exposés on social media world, but there have been a number of uh, books and documentaries that have come out recently that are, that are sort of exposing the, the algorithms that undergird the social media community. And what they're discovering is that uh, these algorithms that these platforms are built on are designed to discover what triggers you so that it can give you more of that. Because what we're finding out is angry people stay online longer than happier people. Like really, that's, that's, the, that's the data. So if I can keep you angry, I can keep you online. And if I can keep you online, I can sell you some pants. Right? <laughs> that, that's what it is. This, is, this is the game we play. So, so listen, if you're constantly feeling triggered and baited into petty debates, I got a news flash for you, it's because you are. You are actually being baited with these things. It is bait to bring you in so that they can have you stay there longer. So the the trap is very much real. And and what Paul's saying is we don't engage like that, Christian. This is not how we engage with issues. He says have nothing to do with those things. Have nothing to do with it. Now notice what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying don't stand up for stuff be a hermit, go live in a cave and grow a beard. Be a weird guy. He's not saying that. He's not saying avoid controversy. What he's saying is be critical of the quality of the controversy you're engaging in. Be critical of that. You know, one of the most godly things some of you might, might do this morning from this text is to just not engage. That might be the most godly thing you can do is to, is to sort of unplug, but some of us might need to just step back from the, the, the spaces in which we are constantly being engaged and triggered to, to deal with these petty things. That might be the, the right response for you. We need to stand, yes, but we stand for the right stuff, not the petty, does that make sense? We stand for the right, now, now how do we, what, what is the right stuff? Right, that's the next quote, what, what do we stand for? What do we defend? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.14, he says this, or 114. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Listen, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That term is Paul's way of saying in his letters, to, uh, it's his way of referring to the, the gospel message, the entire sum of things that make up the Christian Worldview—the the the things that heaven and hell hid, hinge on; those things, the things that really matter that have some weight to them. He's saying, Timothy, you guard that, you defend that, you you stand your ground on, on that. But these petty things over here, th- this isn't worth your time. You 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 stay with the stake. You, you you don't go with the the fixings on the side. We we stay with the the, the real thing. And I got to tell you, as I get older, man, I am I am so reali- realizing that there are. There's so many fewer hills that I should be dying on than I thought in my 20s. In my 20s, I was bleeding out on a thousand mountains, man. I'm just ready to go to war. Let's do this thing. As I get older, I'm realizing those, those mountains are fewer, but they're more important. They're more important, and we take them more seriously. And I think that's what Paul's saying here. And so he, he, uh, the, the warning's clear. We avoid foolish controversy. It's distracting, he says. It's ruinous, but that's not all it is, right? He he says, and we avoid these things because, Timothy, that's not who you are anymore. Look at verse 24. He says this. And the Lord's bondservant, or the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome. Now, we've looked at the back half of that phrase, the not be quarrelsome part, but look at the front half. Why does Paul include that? Timothy knows who he's talking to here why, why include the audience of who paul's talking to here why does he put that here because i think paul knows that to change timothy's activities paul has to address timothy's identity and identity always motivates Activity. He's saying, Timothy, you need to avoid these things, these petty issues, not just because they're wrong or they're broken or they're distracting to you or they're harmful to other people, but you need to avoid these things, Timothy, because you belong to someone. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That word there for, for servant is the Greek word doulos. It's where we get our word slave from. A slave would have, would have been a person who was owned by another person and therefore that slave was to be taken care of by their master, and in turn, that slave was to be about their master's business. Does that make sense? So, so he said, hey, you belong to Jesus. You are owned by Jesus. And so therefore, his interests, Timothy, are now your interests. Knowing your identity empowers your activity. It's how we do all our acts. Everything that's about to come next is empowered by this. We have to know who we are and whose we are so we can act out of that. In a changed way, identity empowers activity. I, I remember when I was, uh, uh, I think it was 19, 20 years old, uh, I was dating Kelly, and man, I, I was all in. Let's do this thing. I wanted to get married. I, I was yes to that, but I was also 19, and uh, I felt like an infant. Like, how, I don't know anything. Like, I'm a, I'm a sophomore in college or, or whatever. I just, I just was a, a knucklehead, and I called my, my uh, mentor, uh, Sam Perry, and I got on the phone with him because I just needed some counsel. Man, how, what do I do here? And I remember telling him on the phone, man, I want to marry this girl. I love this girl. I'm like ready to like, walk with her for a lifetime, all those things. But Sam, I just feel like a kid, and I'll never forget what he said. He stopped me as soon as I said that, and he said, Jimmy, don't ever call yourself a kid again. I have never been encouraged by a kid. I have never been challenged by a kid, but I've been challenged by you. And I've been encouraged by you. You are a man of God. So you call yourself that. I propose like the next month, it's over. So, so, thanks, Sam, it's great, you should talk to Sam. But. It was so helpful to realize that my identity had to change before my activity could change. Identity empowers activity. Everything else we're about to be called to in this passage flows downstream from our identity in Christ, because now the question is, is not, how do I engage controversy? The question really is, how does the Lord's servant engage controversy? And do you see how it changes things? and, And how do we answer that question? How does the Lord's servant engage controversy? The first thing he says with, you have to start with your character. You start with your character. He says, be kind to all. That word kind there appears only one other time in the New Testament in one of the other letters of Paul to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, and it says this. And listen to the words that surround this so you can get a feel of, of what this word carries with it. But, be, but we prove to be gentle or kind among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I mean, that, that just says it all, doesn't it? The, I, the first attribute, we are to have as we engage our opponents. You know what it is? It's kindness. It's gentleness. It is, it's tenderness. It's humility. It's a, it's a meek posture. It's, it's like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children. And can we just agree, man, this is such a missing ingredient in our interactions with people. And we got a lot of things to say. And we got a lot of data and stats and charts and graphs. But what's missing is kindness. I want to be kind to you. When I, when I come and engage with you, I want to have a gentle posture. Th- this is why when guys like Ben Shapiro say things like, facts don't care about your feelings, I want to say, yes, I agree. I think that's true. But there is a tone that you can package your facts in that will ruin a person. And there is a tone that you can package those same facts in that will cause them to flourish and we're of the second sort. That's what Paul's saying. You need to be of that second sort. We be kind to all. That wins a person. And listen, I'm not saying anything new, and neither is Paul. Paul's not saying anything new. This is the wisdom that has dated all the way back to the Proverbs. You remember Proverbs 15, 1, it says this, a soft answer does what? It turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. We've known this. And so the question becomes for us, in light of that, What's your posture like? When you come up to controversy, when you are facing opponents, when you're in those moments, what is your posture like? Are you kind in demeanor? Or are you grumpy? Are you pleasant to be around? Or or are you hostile? Are you hypercritical? Is, is Is that how people understand you to be? Your character will impact your witness as much as your words. Does that make sense? Be kind, but not just be kind. It says be kind to whom? what's it say? To everyone, to all. Be kind to all, which means you don't get to pick who you're kind to, which means you don't get to have the tribe you like and the tribe you hate. You don't get that. That's not up to you to decide. That kindness is an equal opportunity kindness. It goes everywhere. I I don't know about you, but I know folks in my life who are the sweetest people imaginable. I'm thinking about them right now, just kind as you can be. Sweet, gentle, all of that until you mention Trump. (laughs) Or AOC, and all of a sudden, they lose their ever-loving minds. I'm like, who are you? Are you demon-possessed? Why are we so angry right now? Why are we yelling, right? I I, I see this all the time and I think it's broken. It it points to something. It's it's saying that there's a deficiency of character and what God is saying is we need to grow, not just in our words, but in our character. God cares about your character, do you see that? Now, he cares about your character, but Paul doesn't stop there because he doesn't just care about your character. He also cares about your competency. So he says, be kind to all and then able to teach or skillful in teaching, which means you need to be able to say things, something intelligent about the gospel you're defending about the truth you're defending. We have to be able to say something intelligent about the thing that we're holding our ground on. It's not just enough for you to be super sweet to people and then when they ask you what the Trinity is, you go, I don't know, but can I give you a hug? That doesn't work. That's not gonna be helpful to anybody. You need to know some things. You need to have some answers about some things because the reality is there is real error out there that needs to be corrected. Real lines that need to be held. And there are real people on the other side of those conflicts that God wants you to help with your words. I remember about seven years ago, uh, I got a knock on the door, and it was uh, this gal. She was a Jehovah's Witness who wanted to uh, chat with me. That's the best day of my life when that happens. I love it. Sign me up. Let's put some tea on and come on in. So, so she did. She came in, and, and we sat down at the table and 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 talked. And you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, among other things, they don't believe that Jesus. Uh, is God, they believe that he is the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God, they believe that he is the archangel Michael, which I don't know if you know this or not, but that doesn't accord with scripture very well. And so we sat down with the Bible to talk about it, and I, I just had the chance to sit with her with John 5, uh, 8, 8.58, where we looked at that moment where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Except, in her Bible, it doesn't say that. In her Bible it says, do you know what it says?" it says? Before Abraham was, I was. Now that might seem subtle and like a weird nuance and maybe not very important to you, but consider this. <clears throat> Why would you go out of your way to make sure it said I was when in the Greek it's mi which is always translated I Am. Well, you would do that if what's at stake is implying that the guy who just said that is referring to himself as the great I am from Exodus, Yahweh himself, which is exactly what Jesus was doing. And so I had uh, the privilege over the next 15 minutes to just sit with this girl and, and uh, we got out of Strong's Concordance together and we looked at the, the Greek together and I showed her how this is how it's supposed to be translated. This is the you know, first person, singular, present, active, indicative of a me, which means I am. And you know what she said by the end of it? I'd never thought about that. I need to, I need to do some thinking. And I don't know where she is now, I don't know if she's repented and trusted Christ or not, but I, I wanna say this, it was study that served her in that moment. It was knowing something that served her. Now, now am I saying that you need to know Greek and Hebrew in, in order to, to be helpful to people? The answer is no, you don't need that. That's that's not what I'm saying. But you do need to know something. You need to know something. This is an invitation from your God to be a learner, to become a learner, to posture yourself under the teaching of God so that you can sharpen yourself. Are you in the Word? Are you reading God's word and, and, and learning about his character and his attributes and who he is and who he's not and what he calls us to and what he doesn't call us to? These are protections for you and helps for other people. Are you getting involved with other people Christians, in community, in Bible study, where you're looking at God's word together. Uh, when you're reading books, are you reading outside of your your sort of corpus of knowledge? Are you trying to, to discover things that you don't know yet? All, I'm not saying that you have to be the world's best apologist or anything like that. I'm just saying the call of scripture seems to be that we need to be skillful in teaching. And if we need to be skillful in teaching, it means that we need to know some things. So we need the both and. We need character and competency. We need kindness and good theology. We need both of those things coming together. And then he says this: patiently enduring evil. I love Paul because he's a realist, man. He knows if you and I live like this, and posture like this, and talk like this, we're going to be met with hostility. It's no, we're not going to have a fan club. It's just not going to go very well for us. And you've got. And what he's saying is, when it doesn't, you've got to be okay with it. And look, this, was, this has been how it's been for Christians since the drop, y'all. Like For the first 300 years of Christianity, as, as we were trying to be faithful to the gospel and, and preach Christ to a lost and dying world and hold the line on, on matters of faith and doctrine and those types of things, we were being completely, wildly misportrayed and misunderstood by, by everybody around us, including the Roman government. You know the Roman Empire at that time <laughs> characterized Christians as, as uh, a few things. One, they called us atheists. Which is weird, right? Because you're like, I'm a, it's, it's in my name, man. I'm a Christian, I believe in... But they, they thought we were atheists because uh, we didn't acknowledge Caesar as God. They called us homosexuals because our apostles told us to greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, men with men and women with women. Uh, they called us incestuous because we called ourselves brothers and sisters and then we married each other. So that was weird to them, right? But we were constantly, over and over, being misunderstood by the world around us. They didn't get it. And, and listen, in America today, it is, it is a different thing than that. It's not near what it was then. But it's, you're still, if you're holding the line for Christ, you are going to be coming against misunderstanding and opposition and hostility and slander and being snubbed. And what Paul's saying is when it comes, Christian, do not punch back with your fist or your words. You do not do that. We patiently endure evil this is why it matters so much that our identity is fixed in christ do you see do you see why how are you going to survive other people's bad opinions of you some of us and myself included have been so devastated by that guy not liking me very much right? And we're just wrecked and undone. And and Paul is saying from the jump here that we don't need to live like that. We don't need to to walk constantly like in fear that we're going to disrupt the order and and people aren't going to like us anymore. We don't have to do that. Why? How can we live and survive while other people have bad opinions of us? By remembering who we belong to. I belong to Jesus Christ. I am the Lord's servant. I am his. He purchased me and that means he loves me and he has declared the verdict over my life so I don't have to live ruined by another person's opinion of me. My, my, the best opinion of me has already been stated and it's been stated by the only one who matters. I'm the Lord's servant. Our identity shapes our activity. But one of the best examples uh, I've seen of this over the past few years has been my wife she, uh, uh, in 2017, 2018, she released uh, her first book. It's called Friendish, and it went great. It was awesome. It was out there, and, and things were going well with it, and, uh, and then one day she gets a, <coughs> she gets a, a Twitter at uh, from someone who says, hey, uh, Kelly, I just read your book and wrote a review of it, and I, uh, uh, I, I wrote something on it, and, uh, and some other folks wrote some stuff on it, and maybe you should come over to my page and check it out, so she clicks the link and she goes there, and it is an entire website just dedicated to hating my precious sweet wife. It's the most bizarre thing. Just, it's the massive critique of her book and how she's a big, dumb idiot. And then for like 2,000 comments of like, oh, she must not even have a single friend in her life. Does she even know Jesus? I bet she hasn't prayed once ever before. And we're reading this together and I'm wanting to punch a brick wall. And my wife is just handling it with such grace. And, and listen, we were both upset by it. She was upset to be sure, but she wasn't unraveled by it the question is why wasn't she unraveled by it the answer is because she's had the big thing settled she was competent and that she knew what I'm putting out there what I'm saying is the truth it's coming from God's word it's not my opinion this is what God has to say about it and her identity was fixed she had a developed character she knew I'm his he defines me he gives me my worth so I don't have to freak out I don't have to to worry about that. I know who I belong to, and I know what I'm saying is true. Equipped with character and competency, we patiently endure evil in order, listen to this, that we can kindly bring correction. So look at this next part. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. So this is Paul bringing it all together. He's, he's already said these elements, right? We need to be kind and gentle, and we need to know some stuff. And when those come together, it demands that you do that very terrifying thing of opening your mouth now and speaking. Eventually, you and I are going to have to say something to others. Now, when you read this, I imagine this hits uh, us in sort of two different ways. There's two different camps of people out here for whom this, like, uh, disrupts our world. On the one hand, you might hear this, and, and when you read that phrase, correcting your opponents, you would rather be caught on fire than have to do that, right? Like, correcting my opponents? Why do I have opponents? I'm not at war with anybody. I don't want to have conflict. Can't we just hug it out, right? And uh, your, your wiring is just so resistant to conflict, you're adverse to any, this just feels like tension, and messy, and you know, can I just mean tweet them once and be done? Like, I, you know, like we just, we, we don't like this. There, there's a group of us in the room that, that feel it. And I just wanna say, I wanna remind you of something that we said from the beginning. I, I, want, you, I want you to push back against that feeling, if that's you. Because remember what we're talking about. What, what, the topics that we're dealing with, if we're, if we're at this point, we are talking about things that actually matter. This is like life and death stuff. This is like heaven and hell stuff. The stakes are high, the content m- matters. And it, this, this is not just a debate about like who wore it best. You know, it's not that. It's like, it's like, is Jesus the Messiah? And are the implications of the gospel true or false? And how ought we live in light of that? Like these, they're serious things. And what a precious thought that God might use you to bring someone from death to life. That's how, if you're tempted to fear and resist this, I want you to remember that, that this is an invitation of my God to participate with him, to bring someone from death to life. It's a service to other people. You're serving someone else. Remember that, Christian, if you're resistant to conflict. And there's many of us that are. Now, there's many of us that aren't, right? There's some folks in here, you're just, you know, Billy conflict and you 're just ready to go like let sign me up when 's the next time I can offend someone because I cannot wait for that moment right i 've been on your Facebook page and it 's terrible uh, Paul has something to say for you too look at the look at the posture of paul 's words he says correct with gentleness now we 've talked about that that 's that meek and humble posture so we're not we 're not correcting in a hostile way. We're correcting with meekness and kindness. But look at the first word, correct, with gentleness. Now, Paul could have chosen any word to put there, and he chose the word correct. He could have put rebuke, rebuke, but he didn't put rebuke. He didn't put crush, crush them with kindness. It didn't say that. The word is paiduo. It is the word that you would use to describe training up a child. That's the word that Paul used when he said, This is how you are to engage with your opponents. You, you correct them like you would train up a child. It means something like give guidance to. So, our goal, he's saying, should never have been to just crush a person. That shouldn't be the goal. The goal should not be to win an argument. The goal is to win the person. And if you win the argument and not the person, you've lost. You've lost. So if if you're just like chomping at the bit to like slam a truth bomb on someone, this word is for you. The invitation is to come meek and lowly, bringing guidance and corrective instruction to our opponents. We come gentle and we do this, and we come with that posture, that gentle posture, lovingly, because we understand something wildly important. We understand that in the end, the person on the other side of this conversation is not some crazy person. We're dealing with a captured person. Look what Paul says. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been held captive by him to do his will. What is the condition of someone who is opposing the truth? The answer is, they're not our enemies. They're captured by an enemy. That's what he says. In another letter, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it like this. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So so get what he's saying. He's saying that there is a real enemy out there, but it's not that person you're talking to. It's not your neighbor. It's not your mother-in-law, right? It's not these people out there. There is an enemy, and he has a name, and his name is Satan, and Satan actually exists, and he is holding people hostage in such a way that when we show them the beauty of Christ in the gospel, when we unfold for them the implications and ramifications of what it means to trust Jesus and what a life looks like who trust Christ, as we unfold that and show that to them, they can't see it. They can't see it. They're blind to it. We're not dealing with militants. We're dealing with captives. So this is not, in the end, an intellectual battle where we just put our best information up against their information and whoever wins, wins. This is not what's going on. This is not an informational or an intellectual battle. This is a spiritual battle we're in, Paul's saying. And this means a couple things for us, if that's true. If this is a spiritual battle that we're in, when we're in conflict with opponents to the gospel and to the truth, then there's a couple things this means for us. One of them is this. It means that this is a call to compassion not anger. It's a call to compassion, not anger. I have people in my life, and you probably do too, who I have been preaching the gospel to and calling them to Jesus for so long. And, and no matter how, and it's been years for some of them in my life. And no matter how many times I, I, I set Christ in front of them, their heart is just stone Hard. They're so disinterested, they don't want anything to do. They hate the man I'm talking about. There's a guy in my life who, not a month or two ago, I I was talking to uh, about Jesus. And in in an attempt to help him see some of his need for a savior, I said, "Uh, have you ever told a lie? Just to get him aware of his own sins. And his answer back was no, (laughs) which is a lie. And i was so just like, I can't, believe, I'm going to, ah! And then I remembered verse 26, being held captive by him to do his will. And I remembered, I, I'm not dealing with an enemy, I'm dealing with a captor. I'm dealing with a captive. And that changes everything. It's, in my, my temperature decreased. I was able to have compassion for him. It changed how I interacted with him entirely. Here's the second thing it means. So we, we move away from anger toward compassion. The second thing is, is this means, if, if this really is a spiritual battle, is this. If it's true it's a spiritual battle, then we need something better than a great argument and some kind words. We need something more potent than that. We need the work of the living God. That's what we need. And so Paul says, God may perhaps Grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. If you're a in my Bible person, you might just underline the word God, because it is his work. Do you see it? God grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you want to know how you can have immense hope in confrontation when the stakes are high, when the gospel's at stake, when it's heaven and hell on the line. Do you know how you can have immense hope in confrontation, in evangelism, in correcting those who oppose the gospel? Here's how you can have immense hope because you're not the one who's changing people. God is. That's the only way you're gonna survive. You'll go mad if you think any other way. God is the one who does it. When a person repents and turns from their sins and trusts Christ, do you know Who does that? God does that. That's what the text says. Do you have a role to play? Absolutely. You bet you do. We talked about it. All the verses before this. But is it a decisive role? And the answer is, not at all. It is not decisive. Our God is the one making decisive moves. Not us. And I hope when you hear that, that feels incredibly liberating and not like a new thing to debate online after this. I hope you feel liberated by that, and it, it, here's why. This is really liberating for us because it means we don't have to be brilliant in our interactions with people. Some of you might have heard some of the stuff we've been talking about this morning, and you're like, dude, I'm just so not that guy. I just, I, like, the confronting thing, the confidence, the like, knowing what to say and all that, I'm just not, I, I just, I, I know Jesus, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get to know him better, and I wanna articulate my faith, and You know, but that's about it. And The good news about this is, that's okay. You don't have to be brilliant because the work isn't yours to present Earth's greatest argument and be the best apologist and then somehow they'll be changed as if your compelling argument is what does it. What does it is the decisive will of God acting on a human life. He grants repentance, not you. So that burden can, can lift from you. You don't have to be brilliant. Here's the other thing it means. It means you don't have to be obnoxious you don't have to shout at them because it doesn't matter how loud you yell. I love how one pastor said it. I can't, I can't even remember who it was, but, but uh, I remember hearing him say it once. He said, you don't have to shout in a graveyard. You don't have to shout in a graveyard. Remember what the issue is. The issue is not making dumb people smarter or making immoral people moral. That's not the, that's not what's happening in a confrontation, in an argument. What's happening is the need to make dead people living. And I don't know about you, but I, that's above my pay grade. I, can't, I don't have that card to play. I can present some things. I can do what the scripture tells me to do. I can come kind. I can, I can correct with gentleness. I can do those things. I can come able to teach. But I can't raise Lazarus. That's not my job. There's only one guy for who it's his job, and it's God. That's what he does. That's why it says God grants repentance. You don't have to shout in a grave. You don't have to be obnoxious guy or shake them till like they convert guy. You don't have to be that guy. You can be calm and cool and collected and pleading and earnest and petitioning, and then trusting. And really, that's the, that's the last thing. We, we, we're not, we don't have to be brilliant, and we certainly don't have to be obnoxious, but we do need to be prayers. We have to go to the one who has the authority. We've been talking a lot about this who's your one thing and like we're all supposed to identify someone in our life that we wanna see come know Jesus. And if you've heard the rhetoric around here at Stonegate as we talk about it, every time we talk about it, we make sure to put prayer as the first action step. Why do we do that? because you can do all the talking in the world, but it doesn't matter in the end if God doesn't do it. Do you remember the the prayer we prayed at the beginning of service? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Nothing gets built, no one gets changed, no matter how compelling you are, no matter how long you sit with them, no matter any of that, unless the Lord does it. So I wanna go to the only one who has authority, and that is my God. So we plead with him, we ask him, your knees should be red as you, as you plead to God to, to bring that person to faith. God, God work on their heart. God, God compel them, shine in their heart like 2 uh, Corinthians 4 says. Shine in their hearts so that they might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Shine on them, God. Do the work, because I can't. I can't do it. And God, can I say this, loves it when we come like that. Because it makes him look great. That's the the point of all this. It's the point of Christianity. It's the point of the gospel. When we come to God needy and he does the work, it makes him look great. So let's come. Let's ask him for these things. And let's watch him do the work as we faithfully walk beside him. We're gonna end service by praying, but I'm gonna give you a moment to do exactly what we're saying here at the end. I wanna give you a moment. Think about that person who who God is uh, calling you to to reach with the gospel, that you're one. And I'm gonna give you just a moment or two to pray for them. In light of this verse, pray that God would do the work of granting them repentance. It starts there. So I'm gonna give you just a moment to do that right now. Let's bow our heads and and close our eyes and, and talk to the Lord. And then in a moment, I'll close this. Father, the Lord, you grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And you, Lord, you help people come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil being held captive by them to do his will. And we wanna be faithful as far as it concerns us. We wanna do what the text says but we recognize there's a place where our role stops. And so we come to you and we ask you for everybody, everybody who was just prayed for just now, God, we pray that all of those souls, that you would overwhelm with your love, that you would shine your light into their soul, that you would awaken them from slumber, that you would bring them back from the dead, and that uh, you would get the glory for it. And God, help us, in any way that we can to be involved and serve you in it and serve them. But God, please work and save. It's up to you. And so we trust you and hope that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.